in 1965, uh, Jackie DeShannon burst onto the American music scene with the hit song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. Now, I, I think we would agree that our world desperately needs more love. So we look at the state of the world as it is today, cynicism, uh, the harsh rhetoric, the bitterness and disregard that people have for one another. That should disturb us. When we consider the awful acts of senseless violence like what happened in New Zealand this week, when we consider the abuse of women and children, of thousands who find their lives wrecked through unjust wars, I think we have to agree, yes, we, we are a world in desperate need of more love. But what is love, really? Everything falls on, on, on how you define this word love. What is it that we need more of that would make all the difference? So that was 1965. In 1969, Jackie DeShannon had her second big hit. The other song for which she is well known, also about love. She said, think of your fellow man. Lend him a helping hand, put a little love in your heart. You see it's getting late, so please don't hesitate. Put a little love in your heart, and the world will be a better place. Okay? So if we're learning from the theologian Jackie DeShannon, how does somebody put a little love in their heart? I mean, what, what, what are the steps that you take? What, if, what do you do if, if it's not there? You're just not feeling love for people. What, what do you do if you're not a loving person? If you say, I agree with the first song, we need more love. Okay, I need, to, I need to be one of more love. How do we do that? How do I put more love in my heart? Well, Thankfully, the Bible gives us better teaching on love than pop music. The Bible teaches us at length both about what love is and how it comes into a person's heart. And so if we agree that this love is something desperately needed, not only in our world, but in our community, in our families, in our own lives, then I think it's pretty urgent that we look at what Scripture says about this. And our passage this evening has something to teach us. So look at Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. We're looking at three verses, verses 8 through 10. Here's what we read. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Now, before we get to the heart of this passage and the main point that Paul is making in these three verses, we need to make sure we understand those first words in verse 8. Owe no one anything. You see, some have taken Paul to mean from this verse that a Christian should never go into debt. Owe no one anything. Don't ever be in debt to anyone. Is that what Paul means? If you take this verse just by itself, kind of out of its context, and just simply quote those four words, Oh, no one anything, it would be reasonable to assume. This is a verse that says it is wrong to go into debt. Uh, Many godly people have taken these words to mean that all debt is sinful. George Mueller, who founded the orphanages in Bristol, England in the 19th century, He refused to ever go into debt, no matter how dire the situation looked at the orphanage. So, for example, on December 1st, 1842, he wrote, For the last several months, money and supplies have continued to flow in without interruption as they were needed. There was no excess or lack. But nothing came in today except five shillings for needlework. We only had enough to supply our absolute need, milk. We were unable to purchase the the usual quantity of bread. And someone may ask, why don't you buy the bread on credit? My reply is this. If the work is the work of God, then surely he is able and willing to provide for it. I could buy a considerable amount of goods on credit. But the next time we were in need, I would turn to further credit. Instead of turning to the Lord. Faith which is maintained and strengthened only by exercise would become weaker and weaker. He went on to quote Romans 13.8. And then Mueller said, we have no scriptural grounds to go into debt. And then one more quote from Mueller on this. He said, my wife and I never went into debt. Because we believed it unscriptural, according to Romans 13, 8, owe no man anything but to love one another. Therefore, we have no bills with our tailor, butcher, or baker, but we pay for everything in cash. We would rather suffer need than contract debts. Thus, we always know how much we have and how much we can give away. Many trials come upon the children of God on account of not acting according to Romans 13, So what do you think? Is Mueller right? Is it sinful to go into debt and to use credit? Mueller was an incredibly godly man. Mueller was a hero of the faith. And the text does say, oh, no one anything. So if you have a mortgage, are you sinning? If you're making a car payment, if you're using a credit card, take out a loan. So let me make four statements from Scripture about this issue of of debt. First, if you're convinced in your conscience that debt is sin, then yes, for you, going into debt is sin. This is Romans 14. We're going to get there very shortly. We've already talked about how this works. 
If you believe before God that something is wrong, even if you're mistaken, if you believe it's wrong, and then you, believing it's wrong, still choose to go that direction, that is sin for you. So if you're convinced, when we leave here tonight, if you're convinced in your mind, I think going into debt is a sin, don't go into debt. Because for you, it will be sin. Second, debt is often unwise. The Proverbs are clear on this. The Proverbs teach us the way of wisdom. And Proverbs 22.7 is a verse that all of us ought to memorize. And if our kids memorize it, it will serve them well in their futures. The rich rules over the poor. And the borrower is the slave of the lender. In other words, just as those who have money often have power over those who don't, I was going to say something about the college scandal this week, but I'll, I'll leave it. Just as those who have money often have power over those who don't, those to, to whom you owe a debt have power over you. They have a kind of power over you. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Paul said that he refused to be mastered by anything so that Christ would be his Lord alone. We don't want to have two masters. And so if you want a good reason to avoid debt, here's a good reason to avoid debt. You don't want any competitors with Christ in your life. You want any other masters but him. No other lords but him. And if your debt ever gets to the point that it's holding power over you, that it's affecting your life and keeping you from living a life of service to Jesus, then at that point it probably is sinful. And you should seek to be rid of that debt as quickly as you can so that you can better serve the Lord Jesus. Third, we do have to acknowledge that there is a kind of legitimate debt in Scripture. For example, when God taught the people of Israel about these matters and He laid down laws, He did not teach them not to go into debt. What He did say, however, was that Israelites were not to charge fellow Israelites interest. He did permit the Israelites to charge foreigners interest if they took out loans. But to fellow Israelites, they were to be generous with their loans and they were not to demand interest in return. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people who, who you know is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Or Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, if the Bible forbade all debt, then we could never lend to one another. Because as soon as you lend to someone, you're making them your debtor. Yet Psalm 37, 26 says the righteous is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So one of the pictures of the righteous person in Psalm 37 is that he lends all the time. He allows people to borrow his things. You need my lawnmower? Yeah, yeah, borrow my lawnmower. Right? Bring, bring it back. 
Okay, but yeah, borrow my lawnmower, right? It's, it's, it's a picture of the righteous man. But as soon as someone borrows something from you, they've become your debtor because they got to bring it back. Uh, Psalm 112.5, it is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And then Jesus himself told a parable where he said that an unwise servant should have invested his master's money with a bank so that it could earn interest. And, of course, the way banks provide that interest is by using the capital for loan to others. So it's kind of a small point, but it just seems to me unlikely that Jesus would have used that kind of a parable and made that kind of a point, coming to that kind of conclusion, if banks providing loans was an immoral practice. So when those verses are taken into consideration, uh, the implication does seem to be that at least some debt is allowable. Well, then fourth, the context of our verse shows that when Paul says, owe no one anything, he is teaching us to pay our debts, not to avoid all debts as sin. Hear the difference? He's teaching us to pay our debts, not to avoid all debts as sin. This, I think, is the real meaning of those opening words. Pay your debts. And why do I think that? Because of what he just said in verse 7. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything. See? In verse 7, it is clear that Paul is teaching us to pay to others what we owe to them. We all have debts. Debts are a necessary part of life. Taxes, for example, are kind of debt that everybody has. Two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. Um, despite his position on debt, I'm assuming George Mueller owed and paid his taxes. Paul mentions revenue. If you run a business and that business has investors, part of your revenue is going to be owed to your investors. There's going to be a kind of debt there. And then Paul mentions this different kind of debt. Respect and honor. This is a debt that we find ourselves in continually. That is, we continually owe respect and honor to those in authority over us. Paul is not teaching us that this debt is wrong. He's simply teaching us to, to pay it. And to keep paying it. This is a kind of debt that you never get out of, right? The respect and honor that we owe to God-appointed authorities is a debt that we owe every day. So when Paul says, owe no one anything, he simply is segueing to his point about love by saying, be a people who are paying your, your debts. Don't leave these things that you owe undealt with. Pay your bills. Give honor to whom honor is due. Don't dishonor the name of Jesus by being the kind of Christian that doesn't keep your word. And a debt is a promise. Be a promise keeper. Keep your word. Pay your debt. So what I take from all of that is I think the biblical position on debt is this. Avoid them if you can. Okay? Try and stay away from debt as much as you can because the borrower is a slave to the lender. But I don't believe that all debt is wicked. However, if you are in debt, 
you need to be faithful to pay your debts and honor the Lord Jesus in doing so. Now, the rest of our passage here in these three verses is about another kind of debt that is a continuing debt. Uh, This is a kind of debt that we are to pay and keep on paying. And it is the debt of love. Now, question here. How can Paul say, owe no one anything except to love one another, when he's just mentioned two other kinds of debt that we're to have and keep owing? Honor and respect. Don't owe anyone anything except love, even though he just said, you're always owing honor. You're always owing respect. And I think the answer is simply both honor and respect are expressions of love. Honor and respect, this is not a contradiction. Rather, this is the debt of love to those who are in authority over you. This is what it looks like. You pay the debt of love to those in authority by giving them honor and by giving them respect. Paul's main point here is not that love is a debt that you pay every day. Rather, his emphasis in these verses is that love is a law-fulfilling debt. In other words, as we live in love every day, loving those around us, we are fulfilling the law of God. And we know that this is Paul's point and his emphasis because he makes the point in verse 8. He proves it in verse 9, and then he says it again in verse 10. So he makes it very clear exactly what he is saying. Verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's the point. For the commandments, and he quotes a lot of commandments, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's his proof, right? Therefore, verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Exactly what he said in verse 8. So follow his logic. He lists some of these commandments in verse 9. Interestingly, he says that his principle applies to any commandment. So he could have listed any commands, but he chose to to list commands straight out of the Ten Commandments. And particularly, he draws from the second table of the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments start out with horizontal commandments about us and God. You should have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then there are these horizontal commandments on the second table about how we're to relate to other people. And so Paul draws from those horizontal commandments here. And what do you notice about these commandments that he chooses to to quote? They're all in the negative. That is, they are all restrictions telling us things not to do so that our neighbor will be protected. Not committing adultery protects your neighbor's marriage and family. Not murdering protects your neighbor's life. Not stealing protects your neighbor's property. And not coveting ultimately protects your neighbor from strife or violence. Go to James 4. You can read about that. So each one of these commandments is about protecting your neighbor. And Paul says that all these commandments about protecting our neighbor can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we know where he got that from. Because he got that straight from Jesus, didn't he? This is is the teaching of Jesus. 
It was Jesus who said that this is part of the great summary of the law. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, this is all the law and the prophets. This is the sum total of it all. And not accidentally, those two great commandments summarize the two great tablets of the law of God. So when Jesus said love for God and love for neighbor fulfills the law, he was teaching something really important that Paul now wants us to see. And what is it that Paul wants us to see? That the law of God is nothing less than a description of what love looks like. And if you want to obey the law of God, love. If there is love in your heart, the law of God will be what that love looks like as you live. It will be naturally expressed. If there is love in your heart... Here's what it should look like in action. You don't steal and you don't murder and you don't commit adultery. You don't lie. You don't covet. If you love your neighbor, these commandments will be the most obvious and normal thing in the world. Of course, you're not going to harm your neighbor. You love him. I, I love this passage because it helps us see why David said... That the law of God is better than gold and sweeter than honey. The law of God is glorious because the law of God is nothing less than a description of God's character. And God is love. All his ways are love. So if you want to know how to love God, just look at his commandments. And if you want to know how to love your neighbor, just look at his commandments. Love is a verb, something you do. It shows itself in in words and actions, but it begins in the heart. It is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is out of the heart that the body acts. So if love is not in you, it will not come out of you. Meanwhile, when love is in you, the law of God is in you. For the law of God is simply a description of the ways of love. So remember Jeremiah 31. Remember how God looked upon the people of Judah and saw them in all their wickedness and in all their rebellion. The poor were being oppressed. The judges were taking bribes. The people were living in sexual immorality and bowing down to pagan gods. Meanwhile, the leaders were making themselves fat on the backs of the people. And the prophets were speaking lies in the name of God. Drunkenness and vileness were filling the land. And in the midst of that situation, what did God promise? He promised there was coming a day when he would put his law into the hearts of the people. Which was the same way of God saying, I'm going to create a people who really love me. And who love each other. How am I going to create a people of love? How am I going to create a people who love me and love one another? I'm going to put my law in their hearts. My commands are the way of love. We are those people, by the way. Christians are those new covenant people born again, made new creations by the power of the Spirit of God. And God's law has been put into our 
hearts. How he has put his love into us. He has caused us to know something of his love for us in Jesus. And as we live in the love of God for us and it transforms us, it is the ways of the law that come out. I have been loved by God. How dare I go around telling lies? I have been saved by Jesus on the cross. How dare I go and steal my brother's property? We are transformed by the love of God so that the law becomes natural to us. So so what happened when you were born again? Here's what happened. You heard the gospel, the good news of how God loved even you, even me. And you felt your sinfulness before God and how much you deserved hell. And you were broken before him. And here was God speaking to you of his love for you in Jesus Christ. At the cross, the most spectacular display of love in the history of the world took place. As Jesus willingly bore the very wrath of God, our sins deserved in our place. Frankly, no one has ever loved you more than Jesus loves you. And as you came to grips with that and with God's love for you, and as you trusted in Jesus, the Spirit of God caused you to know something of this supernatural, divine, agape love in the very depths of your soul. Indeed, if if you are a Christian, at the core of who you are is this reality. I have been loved by God. I don't deserve it. I am a stinking sinner. And yet I am his and he is mine. I don't deserve it, but he loves me and he has willed to bless me and he has made me his child and he has willed to do me good forever. When that kind of love gets put in our soul, it changes us. And that is the law of God being written into your heart. It's the love of God being placed in you. And the love of God is the fulfilling of the law. So I love how the whole book of 1 John makes this connection between the law of God and the love of God. And I'm just going to read you three verses to make the point. So just listen to this from 1 John 2. This is so helpful, I think. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, listen, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So you catch that? How how do you know that you've been truly saved? Answer, you're going to keep the commandments of God. And guess what? The person who keeps the commandments of God, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. Perfected. That is, the love of God is being brought to its full end. The love of God is, being, is, is, is blossoming into its full flourishing in your life. Keeping the commands of God is simply the love of God in your heart blossoming out into fruit. It is the love of God in your soul bearing its fruit, spreading its aroma, blessing the people around you. You're transformed by God's love for you, so you don't speak bitter words to people. You speak kind words to people. You've been amazed at the fact that Jesus forgave you, so you begin to forgive others as God has forgiven you. God is so patient with you. 
and you marvel that he's so patient with you. And you begin to find that you have a little more patience with others. It's God's love in you causing the law of God to be obeyed in you. So, using that truth, which is what Paul's saying in these three verses, love is the fulfilling of the law. What is the law of God? It is the very expression of what love looks like. So knowing that, let's answer our questions. We said that what the world needs now is love, sweet love. What is this love the world needs? It is not tolerance. It is not affirmation. The love that the world needs is the divine, supernatural love of God that only He can give. It is an agape love that exists in God Himself. It flows between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. And that love is so powerful that it itself is a person, a He, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what the world needs because the Holy Spirit brings life and the Holy Spirit brings conviction and healing and peace. When you're full of the Spirit, which is the love of God between the Father and the Son, when you're full of the Spirit, you don't steal and you don't commit adultery and you don't murder and you don't lie and you don't covet. You don't commit sin when you're full of the Spirit because to be full of the Spirit is to be full of the love of God. So what do we need? What does the world need? It needs Christian love, Christ-centered love. Love rooted in the gospel, the message of God's compassion to sinners. Okay, and how does that kind of love get put into our hearts? Answer, it's a work of God himself. Put a little love in your heart. You can't do it on your own. God must do this. You you cannot will this love to exist in your soul. God must create this kind of love in your soul. He must impart this kind of love to your soul. It is not natural to you. It is not part of your fallen nature. It must come from outside of you, from God himself, by the Spirit of God. He must give you this love. And as the gospel is preached, and as the Holy Spirit works like like a wind that we can't control, the Spirit goes into the person whom God has chosen and gives that supernatural divine love. And when you come to know God's love by the power of the Spirit, you begin to become a person of love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4. So this love is the divine, supernatural love of God, and it's put into our hearts by God as he saves us, as he brings us to the message of Jesus and to Jesus himself and changes us by the Spirit. One more question. Okay. How does this love grow in us? Right now, the love of God has been put inside of us who are Christians. But if you're like me, you're also very aware that there is more inside of you than just that godly love. There's a lot of flesh. There's a lot of residual sin indwelling in me. So how do we grow in this love? Well, we know there's coming a day when we will be perfected in love. 
We know that in heaven, the, the struggle between your flesh and the love of God, that, that struggle will be over. In heaven, you will love perfectly. But for now, how do we grow so that in all that we think, say, and do, we're paying that debt of love to the people around us? Answer, by feasting on the same gospel that put love in your heart to begin with. The same message that brought you to faith sustains your faith. And the same message that brought you to the love of Jesus sustains the love of Jesus in you. May the cross of Jesus Christ never grow stale for us. We have not begun to understand the depths of Christ's mercy. We have not begun to truly see how undeserving we really are and how absolutely staggering it is what Jesus has done for us. We, we are still in the shallow end of the pool, only beginning to make sense with what our feeble minds can comprehend of all that he has done. And as we study the Bible together, and as we pray together, and as we trust Jesus through thick and thin together, the Spirit is working to grow us up in love. We grow first in the experience of his love for us. We put our roots in the gospel and we, we meditate on these truths. Jesus went through that for me and Jesus endured that for me. And Jesus, he knew all these sins that I was going to commit and yet still he went to the cross. We, we put our roots into that gospel and feel God's love for us. And then as we're living in that love, it begins to produce law-fulfilling love coming from us. So we need to turn again to the good news of Jesus every day. Every day we need the gospel. You're never going to outgrow the gospel. You're never going to mature in Christianity beyond the gospel. It, it doesn't get deeper. It doesn't get wider. It doesn't get broader than the gospel. And it is through the gospel that the Spirit grows us up into a mature, holy people of love for Christ's sake. So the same Jesus that caused you to know his love, however long ago it was for you, go to him again every day and sense his love afresh. Ask him to give you, ask him through the spirit to cause his love to be shed abroad in your heart and you so that as you go into the workplace on Monday, as you deal with difficult people on Tuesday, as you're working through tough decisions on Wednesday, you will find that the love of God abiding in you causes you to obey his law which is to live a life of love in your interactions. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions? I didn't think there would be, but I thought I'd ask just in case. Let's pray.